0: We are broadcasting live from Centurion on this beautiful 22nd day of October. Um, the whole of Pretoria is covered in purple jacarandas and it's an absolute feast for the eye. A warm welcome to each and every one of you attending this afternoon's webinar again and it's lovely to see so many familiar faces unfortunately we got names unfortunately we can't see faces I wish um, but it's at least great to know that so many of you are regular attendees of our webinars. This is, in fact, our 24th webinar. I think we started on the 21st of May, if I'm not mistaken, Dion. So we've come a long way. And um, as you might know, we are on our third episode, if I can call it that, of our short series of webinars with regards to practice management. We started with how to set up your practice. Then we delved a little bit deeper on how to market your practice ethically And um, if you missed any of these interesting webinars, please go to four of our platforms. You can find them anywhere there. I'm quickly just gonna copy and paste the link for you. And I'll do that in the chat functionality. Just get that chat up and running. So if you want to go and view any of our previous webinars, you can do so at easymed.solutions, our YouTube channel. It's on a podcast and on Spotify. So please go and familiarize yourself with the content there. But today, we're covering how to prepare and sell your practice. It might sound like a negative subject, but it's definitely not. And it's not something that should be taken lightly either. Um, And I just thought that perhaps once you start thinking about when to close your doors, it might be be too late to start addressing some of the, the subjects that you need to have covered or the boxes that you need to have ticked. But before we kick off with today's meeting, um, let me just quick in, quickly check in to see how many of your peers are, are attending today's webinar and the discussion as well. I know we sure we're approaching about 600 people that registered. We've got 150 psychologists. There's over 70 physiotherapists, um, over 60 occupational therapists. There's about the same, nearing 40 bios and speech and audiologists. There's close to 20 dietitians, medical orthotists, prosthetists, also close to 20 optometrists as well as podiatrists. Very close numbers there. There's 35 registered counsellors, there's a couple of chiropractors, social workers and a few doctors joining us today. In total we've got 18 disciplines and we would just like to warm each and every one of you. I see the people are streaming in so we're gonna give it a minute or two. Um, But just to let you know, I can confirm that today's webinar is again accredited for One Ethical CEU, and as usual, the webinar is sponsored by the SpaceNet Global Group. This, of course, in conjunction with EasyMed, the practice management solution, and Medici, the secure telehealth platform. So as you can see, it's just me and Dion this afternoon. Um, As you know, Dion, qualified physiotherapist, but a man of many talents. And Dion is, of course, the director of the ProfNet Medical and the SpaceNet Global Group executive for operations. Now, Dion, you've been, or you were, in private practice for for many years, and mm. I think you even owned your own private practice. Am I right when I'm saying that?
1: Yeah, I was. I was fortunate to to start up a practice with four esteemed colleagues that are still running that business exceptionally well, and has gone from strength to strength. Um, but yeah, I've been through that sort of establishing the practice, growing the practice from, I think we were seven or eight uh, physios to start with. And at the time I sold the practice uh, some seven years later, we would built it up to just over 50, about 54 staff members. And so it would grown really well. And i had been through that journey and also establishing and then selling um, my shares in that practice was an incorporated company. So yeah, I've been through that journey and it was really exciting and a very insightful one. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been an interesting time.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us this afternoon. And I'm sure you're going to share a lot of knowledge and know-how that you picked up during your years at that practice and and beyond, obviously. My name is Lani Ace. Thanks, Dion. Thanks, Dion. Sorry. My name is Lani Ace, and I will be your host again for this afternoon. As you know, I am a product manager with with the SpaceNet Global Group. Now between Dion and myself, we're going to try and share as much information as possible, but please just do remember that we can't address all the little nuances in each and every practice, and and should you require any practice-specific information, just reach out to an advisor, and that may include Dion or myself as well. Um, But please engage with us this afternoon. You can either use the chat functionality or the Q&A functionality, and between Dion and I, we will try and keep an eye on it and try and answer as many questions as possible. Dionne, how's our numbers looking? I think the participants are still coming in, but I am weary of the time. We gave it about five minutes. So perhaps, let's let's kick off. Um, What I can share about myself, as you know, I was also a physiotherapist, qualified in private practice for, sure, close to 15 years, but I never owned a private practice. I always worked for someone. Um, So I I never had to sell my practice. I never had to close my doors. And I'm just thinking, I presume it's way too easy to start thinking about selling your practice 10 days before your retirement or when you really start relocating or if you just think I've had enough and I I want to close my doors. Surely you need to start thinking about this way in advance, years in advance even. Is is that right?
1: In in fact, so much... uh, so, so far in advance, I actually lecture finally year students um, in, in various disciplines at, at various universities. And it's usually in that business block um, where they're looking at, you know, how to set up a practice, how to run a business, financial management, HR management, and so on. And, and it is there already that I introduced the concept of preparing your practice for sale. And these poor students haven't even looked at establishing or setting up their practice. Now, we're already talking about selling their practice. And I always ask that question, when is the best time to start preparing your practice for sale? Um, and the sooner the better and uh, to all the delegates on this call today um, if you haven't started preparing your practice for sale now is a good time when we close off today now is a good time I'd like to sort of hopefully share some 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 pointers that uh, we can go through a checklist and and people can say yep done that I've, I've got that in place or this is the areas I need to look at because far too often um, we have many practitioners that come to us saying um, my spouse and I have decided we want to immigrate or it's time to retire or uh, you know we're opting out of, 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 of healthcare and we're wanting to sell our practice. What do we do? Um, and when you ask them their timelines on that, their timeframes, they're saying, no, no, as soon as I possibly can, hopefully by the end of this month or end of this year, end of this quarter. And now suddenly trying to put all of these checks and balances in place to, to, to get the, the real value of a business uh, that you've established now over many years. And very often it's 20, 30, 40 years of investment of personal time um uh, in building a practice building your name and now starting to say well now i need to consider selling my practice what i need to do i'm afraid that's very often too late yes one can sell your practice at that point are you going to get the the, the true value of your practice at that point by doing a, a last minute quick reorganizing of the furniture dusting down and hoping you can sell it for good value no and very often in those cases, that's where the word goodwill comes up. And we've had uh, people uh, mentioned to us in previous webinars, and I'm, I hope we can have some time today to unpack what is goodwill mm. um, and how does one establish the value of goodwill. Um, but that's usually the first thing that we're grabbing for. And that's that's an indication that the practice hasn't been prepared for sale. If that's if that's the first thing we're grabbing for,
0: um,
1: oh. I'm afraid there, there there's trouble, trouble that looms. And I think the other part, too, is that I don't think we often understand the real business value of what we're doing when we build a practice and we build a name and we build a service. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's true value in that. Um, we often look at practices, solace practices in different disciplines and say, but, you know, you should be selling your practice for a few hundred thousand or a million or 15 we've engaged with a client recently that's selling a practice for 15 million. Um, and, the, the, and I'm glad you got that response, Lonnie, because I think a lot of people are looking at it going, but what is my practice really worth? At the end of the day, I really just want to close the doors and move on. And fair enough, if that's what you've decided. Um, but I think we do have to understand the true value of the businesses that we establish as we render healthcare services. And um, there is value in that and it will be our call to decide if that's how we're wanting to leverage and grow the asset Mm -hmm. that we're then selling, or in fact, and it's not in any condescending way, there are some that come into practice saying, I want to practice, earn some money. I want to be able to put that away for, for holidays, whatever else it might be. Um, put bread on the table, support my family. But at the end, I just want to really close my business, sell the equipment I've got and move along. And that's wow. all fair and well, if that's what you're setting yourself up for. But very often we see people who've run their business like that. And then at the end are saying, now it's time to cash in. What do I need to do? And unfortunately, the preparation's not been done. Then
0: it's too late. Then it's too yeah. late. So we definitely need to unpack value, Goodwill. Except you've mentioned a few things, and we'll definitely get to that. I just want to rewind one step. I think mm. two or three weeks ago we started about, or we spoke about setting up your practice, and we discussed soulless practice versus a uh, mm. uh, 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 ink. Perhaps yes. you could just explain to to the viewers in one or two sentences. Just highlight the difference again. But then I want you to take it a step further and explain to us. What's the difference, you know, if you have to start thinking about setting your practice, if you set it up as a solace practitioner versus an ink and the sure. implications that those two will have?
1: Sure. So so I guess, you know, in in our um, regulation, and I'm going to use the HPCSA regulation again as a reference point, if I may um the the way that we can actually set up our practices and i want to actually lean to the word our businesses yeah. um, the closest we can set that up in a business type of entity a company structure is an incorporated company and it's only the incorporated company that you can use to set up as a company structure in other words registering with the registrar of companies getting a company number having a company name That's a standalone entity. Now, the the new terminology for an incorporated company or incorporated practice is a personal liabilities company because that describes exactly what it is. You maintain personal liability, which is why the HPCSA allows that, because that way you're not hiding behind the corporate veil. You're not saying if something goes wrong, don't sue me as the practitioner, sue the company. You can't do that in healthcare. You, you maintain your personal liability. So a personal liabilities company says, let's set up a company, but maintain personal liability. And the incorporated company is the only one that can do that. So regulatory-wise from the HBCSA and many of the other regulatory bodies states that you can only use that. So if anybody has got a company number, it's very important to go and look at that number. You'll see the actual registration number starts with the year that it was registered. So it might be 2010. Forward slash and then a seven digit number. And then the important part is the next part. There's a second forward slash and then it's either going to say 07 or it's going to say 21. If it says 07, you've actually registered the company as a PDY and you may not render healthcare services as a healthcare practitioner registered with the HBCSA through a PDY, through an 07 number you can do it through a forward slash 21 which is the incorporated so it's very important to firstly check that because i've had practices coming and say i'm ready to sell and i say great you're in an ink well i've got a company of sorts you look at the documents and they're trying to sell a healthcare in um, a service that's that's registered and running through a pty and you're going to run into trouble there any any well-informed purchaser is going to look at and go but I can't be buying this. You're selling me a lemon because this is now actually in a PDY and I can't purchase a healthcare practice that's sitting in a PDY. So there are some other elements to that, but I think that's the core that we need to be focusing on. So that's that's the closest we can get to corporate. If you're going to do a solace practice on the other end of the extreme, that really, you don't need to register anything at all. Um, You've already got an ID number. um, You're going to go and get a BHF practice number in your personal name. Um, and you're gonna be able to bill for healthcare services using that BHF or PCNS number, your practice coding numbering system. And, and uh, um, Bharti went into very nice detail on that last week in the webinar. In fact, the week before. So I'd reference anybody to those. But that's the setting up of it and making sure that you can do that. But effectively, you're rendering, rendering services in your personal name against your ID number. That's the entity we're talking about. Now you can imagine running a practice for many years through that. And then at the end trying to say, I wanna now sell my practice. And the purchaser says, put in my hand what you're selling, and you're going, well, it's me and my ID number. So you can't really put anything forward because it's all attached to you. Mm. And when you walk away, you walk away with everything linked to you as, a, as an individual. And that's what often makes it difficult to realize the the appropriate value in selling the business because it's actually sitting as a practice in a personal name.
0: Hmm. Very interesting. Yep. I didn't know about the numbers, the 07 mm. and the, the
1: 21. Yeah, that's, that's the litmus test to so go and check that and make sure that's registered appropriately.
0: Awesome. So let's, yeah. let's talk about value. I was just thinking a lot of people, we, we spoke about marketing ethically last week, yeah. this time yeah. exactly when we had Megan Maddox on. Yeah. And yeah. we were talking about creating websites and, you know, the signature of your email and getting, getting the message out there. But you can also perhaps buy some fancy equipment which you use in your practice. Does that yeah. add value? Does, does that make your practice better to sell or worse to sell? I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think, again, um, there's obviously value that one creates within a business. I mean, the first part to look at, and I think what is important is your financials. What is your financial showing? Um, and and ensure that you've got a solid set of financials uh, because your balance sheet will actually show the purchase of these assets. So your balance sheet will show that you've got expensive equipment to the value of a million rand. That's a part of the business assets. Um, it will also show how much money you got in the bank, what investments there are, and so on. So okay. those assets do uh, form part of actually adding value to the business. Um, but again, are those assets registered in your personal name? Have they been bought uh, through a side company that owns those assets? Is it owned by the incorporated company? Um, so those are all important questions about what is the entity you're selling. An asset that I think is, is one that's really of, 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 of relevance to many of us is um, practices will start and they'll be paying rent. And again but i don't want to be paying rent anymore i want to purchase a house convert that into uh, rooms um, uh, i want to purchase rooms in some kind of corporate complex um, and i want to run my practice from there and that's all fair and well and when you're purchasing those rooms or that house that you're going to be converting uh, that can be purchased in the ink uh, or in your personal name or in a pty and then be and then rent is paid to that so you're assuming other roles Um, but if that's purchased in the incorporated company that obviously forms part of your asset value to the business and that'll speak to one of the three, and we can maybe get into that a bit later, is how do I actually evaluate the, the RAND value of my practice? And the net asset value is one way. And there you're gonna be saying, but I've got this is expensive equipment, I've got this building, um, I owe the following people, um, and you deduct those and you get a net asset value. And that is one of the easier ways to establish what is the value of your practice. But I'd only use that if you're using, if you're in a static practice that you almost wanna wind up and sell your assets. That That's probably the lowest cost value. Um, that you can bring in to to establish what the what the actual rents and sense value is of your practice.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of the questions that came up, and it just refers to the way that you set up your practice then, or you register your practice. Are you saying that a PTY is not the best way? Now you always talk <laughs> about inks. I, I know that. <laughs> um,
1: so so I, I'm not sure if uh, Tembekele is a, is a, is registered with the HPCSA. I'm going to make the assumption that in fact she is. Um, and then the question isn't it's not the best way to run your practice you may not ethically you may not run a healthcare practice through a pdy limited i think that must be super clear there's there's no nuances or or ambiguity around that you may not render healthcare services through a pdy or through a cc or through a trust you may not do those 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 are structures that you may not use um so, and I'm emphasizing the point healthcare services. So the minute you put on a hat and you say, I'm a physiotherapist rendering physiotherapy services to you as registered by the HPCSA. I'm going to use physiotherapy code 72501 for my billing. I'm going to be sending you an account with my practice number and I'm going to be stating my title as physiotherapist. When I treat you, I'm a named professional. I've got a name badge saying Dion Beuse, physiotherapist. All of that comes with its regulation around the title of physiotherapy. I must qualify. I must pass. The HPCSA sets those standards. I must practice within my scope of practice, and I must abide by the ethical rules of the HPCSA, my regulator, my statutory body. And in all of those, if those ticks are all in place, then I may only render those services in the solace practice, uh, a partnership, which I'd really recommend people stay away from, an association of different entities to each other, um, or an incorporated company, but not a PDY. The only role a PTY can play is outside of the rendering of healthcare services. So a PDY might own your equipment, might own the building that you're operating from. Uh, you could be a shell in that PDY. It might even own your computers and your uh, uh, your practice billing system, and it might employ your non-clinical staff. It might employ your receptionist, your administrator, your credit controller, your cleaner, your security staff, because they're not registered by the HPCSA. So they can be employed in the PDY, and that PDY can actually provide services to you as a healthcare practitioner, And you pay an an appropriate fee a a market related fee across to the pdy and you could be owner in both but you're wearing different hats but you can't say i'm providing physiotherapy services from the pdy i hope that's clear because that really is an important part and if you're getting to the point where you're wanting to sell your practice and you're pulling out a pdy as your practice entity um you you're going to face ethical challenges on that
0: well so, so, mm. so you mentioned uh, having a solid set of financials. In an incorporated company, aren't you supposed to have audit records as well? Or an audit trial?
1: Yeah, so... so does that add value? Game. It does. Oh, I, I think it is exceptionally valuable. Um, I think we must always ask ourselves the question, if we were the potential buyer, I'm coming in and I want to buy your practice, Lonnie. and uh, you say, but I've been in practice for 10 years. I say, that's really fantastic. What is your turnover like? And you go, well, it's it's not bad. We're doing quite well. Uh, It shouldn't be a conversation. It should be a reach across to a file and say, but here's my audited financial statements for the last five years. Here they are. Have a look at them. And you can see exactly how the practice is doing. You have a look yourself. Yeah. yeah, Now, I use the word audited financial statements. Um, I think that's often something that scares people away to say, but surely registering a company is A, very expensive, takes a long time, and it means I must be audited. Uh, those are all three fallacies. That, that's not the fact. It can be done at, at not a high cost, um, less than 10,000 Rand to register an incorporated company with a partnership agreement and, and a memorandum of incorporation. You can, you can, in fact, do it for, for less than 1,000 Rand if you're wanting to use the CIPC standard template, which I wouldn't recommend, but there is a way to do that. So they're trying to lower the barriers of how to actually register your incorporated company. Um, So it can be done quite easily. And many people think that the minute I've got a company, I must be audited. Um, The short and sweet of it is, no, you don't have to be audited. There's a whole lot of tests to say whether you should be audited or not. I've yet to find a healthcare practice that would actually meet those criteria that you must be audited. However, I would recommend that you voluntarily do get audited. Again, why? Because I'm preparing my practice for sale. If you reach for that file and you said, well, here's some management accounts my accountant put together and my accountant is my... My, my in-law and they're running those and it's all fine and well, but he has kind of books. Um, that's going to have a different confidence level to saying, but he has audited results. Um, so if you can afford it, um, I think it is certainly adding tremendous value to your practice to have financially independently audited financials because that gives a, an element of, of confidence to your potential buyer. And what we really want to do is Get that potential buyer to put their hand just that little bit deeper in their pockets and grab a, a bigger fistful of cash saying, this is what your practice is worth and this is what I'm going to pay you for all the blood, sweat, and tears and efforts that you've put in over the last 10, 20, 40 years in building yeah. and growing your business. Yeah. yeah.
0: So so what else adds value to a practice? Does it depend on how busy your practice is, for example, whether you've got carpets or a wooden floor or the color of your wallpaper?
1: So. I think that's all all good and well, but what does that mean to the bottom line? What does that mean to your generation of cash? And I think as healthcare providers, we're often very cautious about talking about money um, until we're short. And then we're complaining that medical schemes aren't paying, they've run out of of benefits, it's August and all of those things. Um, But it's important that we have the financial conversation with ourselves at least and say, I'm running a practice, I should be earning and those that's for practices that set themselves up as for-profit organizations I don't think we should make apologies for being for-profit um, it's important that we're not profiteering that we're not um, that we're not uh, 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 bringing money into the business that is uh, uh, untoward or, or, or ill-founded um, but it, it, there's nothing wrong with getting good value returns for the services that you are offering where there's good value that you're offering it's a transaction it's- it's still a business at the end of the day. Absolutely. People often say, well, you say don't profiteer. I'm I'm quoting our past Minister of Health, Aaron Motsoledi, that said healthcare practices shouldn't profiteer. But it doesn't mean they shouldn't profit from there, but it should be appropriate profits. Mm. And people often then say, well, what's an appropriate profit? So I think the two things are, what is an appropriate salary for myself, number one, um, and you can benchmark that to your peers, you can benchmark that to state, and say there's a premium on state salaries, or the state salaries are, 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 are pretty good I hear. i understand um but you need to benchmark what is an appropriate salary for yourself with your years of experience um, and then say at the end of the year there should be money left over and that is your profits and 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 how much is that and profits after tax because obviously you've got to pay your tax first and then you can take your money um and you know i think a healthcare practitioner practice that's running anywhere from 20 percent profitability and upwards um, is 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 worthwhile you know we've we've assessed practices and looked at their financials and those that are running less than 20 percent are usually asking the question why am i going through all the shit i may as well work for somebody get a good salary and then go to home and switch off mm-hmm. now, if i have to stay switched on and do everything other than clinical work financial management hr management it management it's all those other things that we have to do as well marketing going out marketing. there and and, and <laughs> exactly all of that costs, but you're not billing for that as a physiotherapist or as a doctor or as an occupational therapist. And that's what that profitability is really about. And that profitability, being being north of 20%, allows you to have extra money to help grow that business, stabilize the business, build cash reserves so that we can weather storms like COVID uh, when the revenue dries up. You're starting to employ people, and they've got their families that are dependent on the revenue that you're providing. So there's a responsibility, and to do that, you have to be financially feasible. And for that, a profitability of twenty percent and up, I think, is is a manageable um, uh, ratio. Um, how high should it go? Well, you know, I, you know, well done if people are able to get higher profitabilities than that. But often when I see profitability is over 40, 50%, one has to just make sure that 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 is all appropriate um, and, and how is that being done. So that's usually the band we see, 20 to 40% profitability. Um, but it needs to be worthwhile.
0: So, so one thing you mentioned was to to have your practice assessed or or having a valuation done in your practice. Is that possible yeah. even? Absolutely. And who does yeah. that?
1: Absolutely. So The first thing before you can assess a practice, you've got to have a solid set of financials. So I would encourage us to firstly, make sure that the bank account that our revenue is coming into for our practices is separate from your personal bank account. That's number one. Um, It shouldn't just be your personal account with all your personal expenses and school fees and and practice expenses all in one. And that often happens in solace practices. So the best thing you can do if you want to stay solace is at least separate your bank accounts out. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the month, say, but my salary is X and transfer that into your personal account and then go and spend that. What's left in there, you need to be building up as reserves. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is to get a solid set of financials. If you choose not to be audited, because there's a cost involved with that, then make sure that you've just got um, a financial officer that signs off on your books on on an annual basis. Um, But again, I would encourage us to have monthly financials so that you know monthly what's going on in your practice. And those are usually management accounts that you'd get from your accountant. Hold your accountant accountable and ask them for the stuff so that you can actually keep your finger on the pulse, mm-hmm. know what's going on. Your measure shouldn't just be how much money's in the bank. There's much more uh, elaborate and more appropriate uh, financial uh, tools to use to take the temperature of your business, not just your bank balance. Um, so, so get those on a monthly basis, set a budget. Know how you're tracking according to your budget. Ask your accountant to help you set that up. Um, And with those financials, you can then go back on and use that information and say, right, how do I evaluate my business? Now, I always encourage people to say, hold your accountant accountable, rather pay that a little bit more and ask them for your your set of financials for the annual, uh, for the financial year. Get those and at the same time say to them, but just use evaluation method to tell me what my practice is worth at the same time. So at least once a year, you're actually benchmarking and say, the value of the practice is the following: Should I sell my practice now? What could I expect to get from that? Now we we know it's willing buyer, willing seller. But at least you've got that benchmark that you're using to see: Is my practice growing, or is it is it is it is it deteriorating? Um, and there's there's, there's typically um, um, th- three ways to to assess your practice. And I want to start with the one that that the industry seems to have adopted somewhere. And I'm not sure where it comes from, um, but it is one of these of. You take your practice turnover and you multiply that by three. That's the value of your practice. I have no idea where that comes from. I don't know where the science is behind that. I really would dispel that immediately Um, because... Just because my turnover is high, that doesn't mean my profitability is high. I could be running at a loss. Yeah. So I could be buying a lemon. Even though the turnover is a million rand a month, my expenses could be 1.5 million a month. How can I say the practice is then worth three times turnover? So, so I would dispel that. I think people are often using that as a quick benchmark test to say, how much is my practice worth? But it's how efficiently you're running the practice. So that's that's one way. The other way is your what I mentioned a little bit earlier is your net asset value. There you literally take your balance sheet and you can draw from that and say, um, I've built up assets that are worth uh, a million Rand. Um, I owe SARS and other, other people I owe money uh, of 100,000 and then the leftover is 900,000. So that's the net asset value of my business. And that's typically an assessment mechanism that we would use if we're trying to wind up a business, trying to close it off and say, well, if we sell all the assets, pay everyone we owe, how much is left? That's a net asset value. And that I typically use for a practice that is pretty stagnant, that's not really growing, because you're not looking at the future earning potential of the practice. The last one is my favorite, and that's usually in a growing practice, and that's the, the future price earnings yield method. Um, The the accountants will know what that means. There's a formula that they will use to that. And essentially what you're doing is you're waiting the last, you need a bit of a track record, three or five years of what's happened with your profitability over that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're basically selling the practice today for the future value that it's going to be bringing because it's a growing practice. Um, And so it's a forward-looking and a future-looking valuation to say, if you buy my practice, you've got the potential of earning certain revenues and profits that you would then use to pay back um, what you're paying now for it um, and uh, that would be over a period of three or five years um, depending on what we call the PE ratio um, but the price earnings yield method will actually give you that future or, or forward thinking valuation of a business um, which, which which is the one I prefer in a growing practice but oh. your accountant can do that as long as you've got a solid set of financials to give I them know, they can look at that and come back to you with a valuation
0: but that's why you need record. to capture those mm-hmm. financials from the word go the day that you open your door that needs to be in place
1: Yep. Yep. The um, yeah, the other thing that we often look at, and I've seen people actually shy away from this point where we say, okay, let's do a, a, an evaluation of your practice and we come up with a number, whatever that number might be. Let's use, it's worth 400,000 Rand. They go, but no, there's no one that's going to pay that. So I'm going to just shy away and say it's not worth that. It is worth that. Whether somebody can afford it or not, that's a different, different conversation. Slide. And I think we mustn't run away from the affordability elements, because often we're looking and we're saying, but I wanna sell to somebody in my practice, somebody that's grown with a practice, somebody I'll be confident to leave it with. Um, So I've identified that person, but they've said they can only afford 100,000 and my practice is worth 400. So your options are one of two. Either we're gonna say, I'm gonna sell it for less than it's worth, 100,000. Or I'm gonna say, it's worth 400. You put the 100,000, how can we actually put a mechanism in place over the next period of time to actually then pay the remainder, uh, or do you buy in as a portion? If you can only afford 100,000 of a 400,000 rand practice, then you're 25% shareholder in that practice. And as you can afford more, as you declare profits, instead of put giving them across to you, we're going to withhold those, and you're going to then use those to purchase your next 5% yeah. until you've got 100% ownership. So there's a transition process, and I really do encourage, you know, there's nothing easier for a buyer to come along, whether it's a house or a practice or whatever it is, is to identify a motivated seller. That person has already packed the crates and already sending them off overseas. That person has already booked their flight. Um, they really mm-hmm. press to sell. Um, so, so if you haven't got a, a runway plan to sell your practice, you're going to be a motivated seller. In other words, the buyer is going to get a good price. If you've got your time to sell and you've got a motivated buyer who goes, This is such a phenomenal practice. I want to have a piece of this. I've worked in this practice. I love what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And you have a plan, a one, two, or five year plan on how you're going to then transition mm-hmm. ownership you're in a much better position as a seller to actually extract the value, the fair value of the practice from a potential purchaser. I see <laughs> you're looking at some questions, yeah? That's
0: a mouthful, yeah, it's quite a long one. Um, I'll, I'll read it in just a second. But sure. there's a word that's in the back of my head the whole time, and this is around goodwill. Oh
1: uh, my, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm
0: sure you can talk around goodwill for for an hour, but give us uh, the short version. I mean, does your does your practice have, have goodwill? How do you determine what it is?
1: So, let me give you the short of it. If you go and look up the definition of goodwill, um, there's an accounting uh, definition for goodwill. And that really is, if I've got this pen, um, and and I say this pen's worth 100 Rand, Mm. but Lonnie, we then go and do an assessment, and we say, okay, what's the plastic worth, the IP in it, the construction of it, the factory uh, costs of actually making the pen. And instead of coming to 100 Rand, it comes to 50 Rand. Then the, 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 the assessed value of the pen is 50 Rand, but I want 100 Rand. Now the poor accountants sit in the middle and they go, well, which number do I use? Because now my books aren't balancing. You're wanting a hundred, but it's worth 50. How do I account for the difference? Mm. And the term goodwill is is defined as the difference between the assessed value and the asking price. So essentially what you're doing by saying goodwill is you're saying, if you assess what this pen's worth and it comes to 50, I'm not going to accept 50. I want a hundred because I actually want more than the actual value of the pen. So my goodwill that I'm asking for is an intangible additional cost um, over and above the true value of an objective assessment of what I'm going to ask you for. So I'm actually saying to you, I'm going to actually inflate my cost by an extra 50, Lonnie, and I want you to pay 100. And I can't tell you why. All I'm saying is I want an extra 50 Rand over and above this. And that's goodwill. That's the counting definition of goodwill. Now, if I was selling a practice, I would make all efforts to convince you lani why this pen is actually worth 100 and not 50. Mm. so here's my assessment my evaluation it says 50 but i want 100 and can i tell you why this pen is amazing i've been using it for so long and it hasn't run out of ink it really writes well it fits well and i'm now doing a marketing pitch to try and upsell you from the value of it to what i'm wanting and i'm trying to sell you into that space think of a house if you're selling your house mm-hmm. uh, we usually got um, and muffins baking when the person comes in it's about the smell the music the flowers the view, right? it in spring because i want to up that value right i'm trying to encourage you to to purchase it for more than than perhaps what you're willing to and that's the goodwill game if you're reaching for goodwill as your first primary selling point you're in trouble and we need to at least go it's worth 50 now i want a bit more than that not it's worth nothing but i want to get 50 right um if i was a let's say if i'm a seller i'm going to motivate and i'll give you a lot of reasons to justify goodwill and there is a good value in that but your negotiating skills have got to be pretty good. If I was a buyer, or I was representing somebody wanting to buy a practice, I would be immediately discounting the goodwill saying, but hang on a second, let's look at the true value. And we're not interested in all the other stuff. And let's start from the 50 Rand value. So now you're coming from two different angles and you're gonna have to get to that agreement of willing buyer, willing seller. Um, But goodwill, yes, there is value in goodwill. Um, So I've taken extreme examples here. There is value in goodwill. Um, But the goodwill is about the running concern um, in other words, if I buy your practice, Lani, today, um, and we conclude the agreement by the end of November, at the end of October, the first of November or the second, the Monday when I come in, I want to know it's a running concern. The patients are there, the referral networks are there, my lease agreement's in place, um, the employment contracts are in place. I'm going to pay you value for that because there's a convenience factor. I'm not starting from zero. I'm starting at a running sprint, right? Yeah. So so that's the running concern. And I'll be willing to pay more for that than when starting a practice from scratch or building the pen from scratch and only spending 50 bucks on it. I want to be able to take it and use it immediately. But for that to happen, the business must be structured in a transferable manner. That's where the incorporated companies come in so well. And I want to come back to the solace practice versus incorporated. As a solace practice, if you've got a running concern and you're convincing me to now buy the practice and you're going to, you're telling me it's a running concern. On the 2nd of November, when I come in, I look at the staff and I say, it's so great to have you guys here. And they look and look at me and go, but we don't work for you. Our employment contract was with Lani. Mm-hmm. And it was it was Bitpompis where their ID number is contracted as an employee of Lani with your ID number because it was a solace practice. Mm-hmm. Now Lani's left, that contract is no longer with Lani because Lani's no longer there. So are they contracted to me as the new purchaser? No. Uh, The lease agreement, same story. The landlord comes in and says, where's Lani? I've got a contract with Lani, but she's no longer here. And I say, no, I've bought the practice. And they go, but I haven't contracted with you. So, sorry, but we're going to have to renegotiate the lease agreement. Um, Your VAT, your tax, everything is linked to Lani, who's now left. And now I come in as the purchaser against goodwill, and it's not really a running concern. Because suddenly, contractually, I'm nowhere. Juxtapose that with an ink. Lani had the foresight to actually set up an entity separate from herself many years ago to actually set up an incorporated company. And she has signed all the employment contracts in the name of the Inc. So there's Pit Pump is an ID number employed by Lani Ace Incorporated with its forward slash 21 company number. Um, The lease is in the name of the Inc. The tax is in the name of the Inc. The VAT registration is in the name of the Inc. And so it goes on. Right to the EasyMed solution is in the name of the Inc. The, The actual software that you're using all of those is in the name of the ink uh, the bank account's in the name of the ink so when lani sells me the 100 percent shares of her business or 50 percent or whatever it is i purchase those shares of the business but the business still has its bank account it still has its VAT, its lease its employment contracts all in place all it's done is the ownership of that has changed but the contracting is still with the ink can you see how valuable that is you can actually can you tiptoe change? away from a business and it's business as usual although you're not no longer around and it might be over a period of time, it might be at the end of the month, and I come in and I say, I'm the new shareholder or owner of this business. you still contracted with the business. The lease is still with the business, but I'm the new owner of that. And that's the difference. Okay. That gives us that traction to actually move mm-hmm. forward and actually have a running concern where I'm willing to pay a bit more for this goodwill element or the, the assurances that it will be business as usual once I take over ownership.
0: The owner practice won't be a good practice if there aren't any patients. hmm So when you sell a practice, obviously you've got a network of patients and your patients have been coming to you for many years, you've got a whole database with them, including their health records, whether that's a record electronically or a paper record. Mm -hmm. Do you inform your patients that you're selling your practice and someone new is buying it? Um, If someone is taking over, if you are just closing your doors, never to be open again, yeah. What's that message that needs to go to the patient? And can you even share the patient's details with the new practice owner, with, without permission?
1: That's such a difficult one, Lonnie. And I think we could have a whole webinar on patient records, retention of records, who do they belong to? Um, I'd like to refer our viewers to, to previous webinars that we had with Dr. Quinda from the HPCSA, um, where we had a very lively debate around the ownership of patient files, patient data, um, and where that sits, who, who who actually has the ownership on that? And who can you share that information with? So I don't want to go into that again. I think there's there's full hour sessions on on just that. And we could possibly revisit that. But what I want to caution about here in preparing your practice for sale is, again, uh, often when it comes to the goodwill conversation, it is, you're going to be paying a bit more. But for that, you'll also get all my patient files. It's almost like we're trading the patient data, the patient information. And they often also add in, and you'll get my doctors that referred to me. Now, we know that um, your referral networks are often dependent on an individual unless you've built the brand identity in an entity that stands on its own. Rather than Lonnie Ace as a great physiotherapist, it's Lonnie Ace Incorporated who employ a great bunch of physiotherapists and services that run. Okay, that's a different conversation. Um, and it's building that brand awareness of the independent entity that people continue to refer to. Um, if you consider, I'm going to take this out of the healthcare space and say, because uh, accountants and lawyers, by the way, also uh, are subject to the same regulation as us and only being able to run in an ink, not in a PDY, because they also have to maintain personal liability, just for interest's sake. And you use examples like um, Adams and Adams. I think it's a, it's a law firm that many of us know um, who do IP uh, uh, law. Um, Adams and Adams is the surname of the founders. They're no longer there or possibly no longer there. Um, but the you guys have taken over, but you refer there because that's the entity you're referring to. Uh, Deloitte and Tush is another one we've used that's now Deloitte. So those are surnames of people and that set up an accounting firm, a consulting firm, um, and, and have passed that on. So that built that brand awareness where the referrals then go to. So that's just to, to kind of put that in, in perspective. Uh, but when it comes back to people saying, buy my practice, here's my goodwill, and it includes patient records, my file to get the key to my filing cabinet. Um, and you will get my referral networks. N- Neither of those can be guaranteed. Firstly, the patients decide where they go. So a new person's there they say, but I don't want to come to you. I was always going to Lani. She was why I came to this practice and she's no longer here. I'm going to go and find somebody closer to home. Um, so there's no guarantees in that. And the same with your referral networks. Um, when it comes to the patient files, handing over the keys to your practice and in the, the keys to the patient files is, is is something I'd really want to caution against. And the patients need to be sure they, they contracted with you that the patient details and assessment, the subjective evaluation you did was with you, the informed consent was with you as a healthcare practitioner, and those all sit with you. Um, And to just pass those on to another practitioner without the patient's permission is dangerous. I'd like to spend a webinar on this so we can specifically unpack it in more detail. But do be sure that you include the patient in that communication to the patient to say, your files are here for collection. There's a new owner. You're welcome to bring those along or we'll give us permission to pass those on for continuity of care. Mm-hmm. This is a new practitioner, but the patients have uh, an, an option. They, they they can express their yeah. uh, their decision around where it goes. You can't just pass that on and trade that data as if it's yours to trade. It's the patient's personal information, typically, that's contained in those files. Okay. So I would really caution. I think it is something really that
0: we need to unpack a bit more in, in more detail in a, in a future webinar.
1: Yeah. but.
0: I think that there's two options. You either sell your practice on to to someone else or a group yeah. of people, or you just mm-hmm. close your doors. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you close your doors, you're not going to make any money out of it.
1: Well, look, if I've got some equipment, I've got some desks, chairs, I can put those on on eBay or I can sell them yeah. somewhere secondhand, and I can I, I can I can realize some of that. I'll have money in the bank. I've got a debtors book that I can still collect on patients who owe me money, medical schemes that owe me. So that'll still run on for a while. And it's also a consideration when you're selling your practices. Are you selling on your debtors book, the collections of outstanding uh, accounts, or do oh. you continue to own that? And then you have to exclude that out of your sale price. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a difficult one. Um, the, the, the running concern, you, you're mentioning two ways, close mm-hmm. the door. Or sell on to somebody. There is a third one, and I think it's the one that works probably better. And that is, if I can unpack the incorporated company a bit more. In an incorporated practice, uh, you can be the only shareholder in it, so you've got 100% shares. Or you and I can go into into a a partnership in that one. I use that word loosely. We can be co-shareholders in it and you can be 50% owner and I can be 50% owner. We start up our practice and all's going well. You got 50 shares. I got 50 shares. Whatever the practice value is, you get 50% of the profits. You get 50% of the dividends that are declared and so on. And we identify somebody who's I've got a five-year plan. I want to emigrate. I want to sell. I want to retire. And we start identifying people in the practice. And I start saying, okay, I'm going to make 10% of my shares available to somebody in the practice. And they can purchase that. And we can have some scheme that allows them to afford that. Um, and uh, they purchase that 10%. And now you 50. I'm 40. they 10. And so you transition over time the ownership of the practice. So that you're not just pulling yourself out and bringing somebody else in. You're actually transitioning that. You're grooming people into it. And that also allows people to... Within healthcare, I think very often people are saying, what's my career path? All I can do is become a senior clinician, um, but what else can I do? I want to be a practice owner one day. And usually the only option is, well, if you want to own your own practice, you know, skedaddle open in competition to me, really. That's essentially what happens. But I want to say, but you're a great clinician, and you got good potential to actually be a business owner. I want to bring you in. And so you're looking at your succession planning within the practice. um, You are giving people career pathing in the practice to own their own practice. And you are transitioning yourself out of that practice over time so that that it continues to grow and go from strength to strength rather than implode Mm. on itself. Mm. Yeah, but talking about
0: transitioning... (laughs) How does that affect the naming of the practice? So if, okay. if you were, for mm-hmm. example, I mean, you mentioned mm-hmm. Lani Ace Incorporated. Yeah. And now I'm getting someone else in the practice. Let's say it was another physio working with me. And that mm-hmm. person is taking over slowly but surely more and more shares. they the majority owner at the end of the day. But it's Stop. still Lani Ace Incorporated.
1: Absolutely. So, so in the same way that it's still Adams and Adams, whether they're around or not, <laughs> Lani Ace Incorporated can be around for generations to come. And, and I think that's what we need to be doing is building on the value. You know, with solace practices, very often what you do is you build a practice, you close it, it shuts down, the next guy comes along. And so you don't have any stacking effect. Um, you look at good businesses that built over generations, they're built over changes in leadership and ownership. Mm. Um, so Lani Ace Incorporated could in fact be around in 200 years time still. And people can start, it can become a household name. Um, and people are going, you know, that's where you go for physiotherapy services. Um, Provided you give permission for the new owners to continue to use that name because it is your name um, and you give that in writing, they can continue to use the name Lani Ace Incorporated for for as long as they feel there's value in that brand name. But does that thing need to be the name that's on the door of the practice? Yep, and on the letterheads and on the bills and on all the rest. Because that's also what what you're leveraging your marketing campaigns around. You're trying to create an awareness of Lani Ace and what it means. Uh, that has got a specific focus in 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 sport or women's health or whatever it might be. You want that brand to be that brand awareness to be out there. We want to compete in a healthy and uh, um, a beneficial way to the patients to say, this is who I am. This is what makes me unique, and this is what you can associate with my name. The quality and the value that comes with that. And that shouldn't fold when you leave and decide to retire. There's a strong potential that that can continue, continue. because you've built that yeah. name and brand awareness. Yeah, yeah the, so, awareness,
0: the brand awareness, definitely.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, I would, I would, I often encourage people to say, um, we, we, we sometimes think that our names aren't that cool. You know, the, how can I have a name like Beauty Physiotherapist? Is that really going to stick? Is that going to grow? Is that going to have... But you think of names like Deloitte and Tush. I think when they first decided on that name, they probably all shuddered and go, is this really gonna stick, guys? Is there any way we can call ourselves anything cooler than this? But that became a brand name, and it's now reduced to Deloitte, just to make it easier, KPMG, similar things. But you've actually got association with name and surname that actually does grow good value. So it's not about the name. It's the association with that name. It's the marketing. It's the quality. It's the patient value that gets delivered and associated to that name that's valuable. I'm not sure
0: whether you saw the question from Estelle. Can you charge royalties from your name and brand?
1: Royalties? Well... (laughs) I, I want to maybe take the royalties conversation into the into the into even the franchising conversation. So if I use the word franchising, I'm sure that the majority of our participants are going to go, no, you can't do that. I want to challenge you to go and actually look at the HPCSA regulation around franchising. The regulation states that you can franchise. You can build value that is, is disseminated across. You can do that. There are stringent criteria. Just because you can franchise doesn't mean you can contravene on other elements of the HPCSA regulation. And in fact, in the book it says you may franchise provided, and it gives you a list of the things about what that providedness means. So go and look at that. So I would challenge you. I love the thinking, still that you're thinking about franchising. We're talking about IP. And we have a lot of psychologists that come to us and say, I've developed a certain battery of tests or an assessment methodology. I want to protect that IP because I've done a lot of research in that. I've done my doctorate in it. Yes, there's value in that. Add that value to it. I think we often don't realize the value that we carry. That sits with our experience that we've built and the research we've done. Um, so, so, yes, I would explore those as, as asset values within a practice.
0: Cool very interesting there's a couple of interesting questions that that's coming up here any guarantee of making almost the same turnover as well as patients loyal loyalty i mean i don't think anything is a guarantee
1: mm, um, for sure that, that's why you know if i was buying a practice and i wasn't quite sure i'd want to have a co-ownership agreement with the current owner to get to know their staff to get to know their patients the way that they operate get to know the referral okay. network and have a transition period because that assists you to to at least manage that risk because yes there is a risk you start and everyone goes half the patients go well you know i'm not coming here i like going to a female physiotherapist and suddenly there's a male here no that's not what i'm that's that's not for me i'm going somewhere else Mm -hmm. um so so there is those risks how do you manage those risks i think that transition period is is of value where there's a hand holding through that and there's a hand over of the practice right from the networks the patients the staff uh, to make sure that the new incumbent is actually uh, set up for success.
0: So, Dean, yep. if you've got a practice, but you've got two mm-hmm. facilities, do they both sit on the same ink or do you need to separate them? And can yep. you then just sell one?
1: Yeah, that would be your option in the structure in which you which you build the business. Um, having various places of service does not mean that it has to be separate entities. So, they can all be billing under one practice number. Okay. Um I know that there are practices that have different shareholding in difference. So in the hospital practice, there might be three owners in my own personal practice. I run from home uh, for those patients that are discharged in my area. I want to do sort of a, a treatments from home. You may separate those, but I think what is important is that the vision about how you want to sell that, you know, you might have a vision to say, I want the building to be separate to the incorporated practice to be separate to the um, uh, uh, ergonomic assessment and consulting mm-hmm. practice. Then set those up separately so that you do have the vehicles and the entities to actually sell or to change the ownerships in all of those. Also remember that in the HPCSA regulation, so if you have an incorporated company, only other practitioners registered with the HPCSA of your same discipline can be in that ink with you. Whereas in a PTY, you can obviously, that's outside of HPCSA regulation, you're not running clinical services, but the ownership of the building, for example, that can be with people outside of the HPCSA regulation. So you're not then restricted that your partners or your co-owners are, in fact, other healthcare practitioners that are the same registration as yourself. So that does give you that fluidity to move in those spaces. But yeah, I think make sure that your structure is set up in such a way. It's very difficult to say it's all one company, one bank account, one practice number, but I want to sell this portion. How do you do that? Then you mm-hmm. must rather say, become an owner in it, that this portion is 20% revenue or profitability of the whole business. So I'm going to give you 20% in the whole business or spin that off and separate that off as a separate business. Sure. Or
0: separate okay. So, so what, if, what if one of those um, businesses, you actually renting a room at a school? And now you want to step away from that. You want to close that. Does that work any different or does it? would it follow the same pathway?
1: It's just another example of another place of service. Yeah. I think it follows the same principles. So either spinning that off as a separate practice, um, but then doing that up front so that you can actually have a set of books. You know what the bank balance looks like for that practice and yeah. so on. But when it's part of a whole and you're not trying to sell this part away, it's very difficult to quantify. And again, put yourself in the shoes of a potential buyer. Um, you're going to have to justify why that value is what it is. Um, mm. And that selling that has attracts a certain value. You know, there's always a willing buyer, willing seller. I can come and do all kinds of evaluations and have all kinds of amazing standard operating procedures. My lease agreements are in place. My contracts are in place. The ink is in place and all of those. And I say, but my practice is worth a million Rand. If I can't find a willing buyer for a million Rand, then you know what? I'm going to have to look at a different value. Um, you know, there's always different ways of looking at you. Look at a house sale. Uh, there's, there's never a case where the seller wants less than the buyer is willing to pay, right? It's, they're usually coming from the other extremes and they meet each other halfway. halfway. That's the reality of any kind of sell, isn't it? Yeah, yeah.
0: But, but I mean, we keep talking about value, value of your practice. Surely your patients have got a value as well. Can you even start by determining that? Is it the amount of patients that you see? Is it the amount of times that you see your patients?
1: Uh, comes down to rands and cents. You know, if I'm if I'm seeing 20 patients a day, uh, but my profitability is looking at a very low profitability, that's mm. going to speak to the value of the business. Because that's it may be a bit of a cliche, but busyness isn't a business. Um, I think sometimes we find ourselves as long as we're busy and we're seeing a lot of patients, that means I've got a good business. That a bus- a good business is is how it's geared. What are the ratios? What is my income versus my expenses? Mm-hmm. And if there's something left over at the end. Um, that's what makes it makes a business, doesn't it? Um, but busyness does not mean that you've got a good business. So I wouldn't I wouldn't pin it on patient numbers because good patient numbers will translate into good revenue, and good expense management will result in uh, uh, result into good profitability. And that's really the measure of of a successful business, um, unless of course we choose to. And there's there's nothing wrong with saying I don't want to go into a profit motive in my practice. I'm motivated by taking care of patients. Doing that to the best of my ability, then register a non-profit organization. There's nothing wrong with that because then the structure is actually underpinning and supporting your intentions in the business. The sad thing is that many people look at saying, I want to run a profitable practice and I want to earn some money from that and some more uh, in the profits at the end. And when I sell or retire, I want to sell it for a good value. Um, But it's only that consideration at the end that they're saying, but this is what I want for it been um, meantime, they've been running it as a nonprofit organization essentially all that time. And now suddenly there's an unmet expectation. So so just choose the right vehicle. There's nothing wrong with being an employee. There's nothing wrong with uh, working in the university and state and working in nonprofit organizations or setting up a for-profit organization. You just need to set what is your what is the standard, what are you aiming for, and then go for it. Um, but, you know, running one way and then expecting a different result is where that tension always happens when it comes to trying to sell a practice when it hasn't been positioned for selling uh, over all those years.
0: Mm. And when you're selling a practice as as oh, as one discipline, let's say I'm selling my practice as a physiotherapist, mm. but can a different discipline buy that practice, even if it is just the building? I'm not talking about the patients.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, this. There's the, there's the opportunity cost. I think that's what people are often looking at. And, you know, we say location, location, location is so valuable. Um, so, yes, I think there's very often a, you know, I know Lonnie's going to emigrate or she's about to retire. So I'm going to hover around and know that when she goes, there's going to be a vacuum. It's either a space in a building that I'm going to go to the landlord and ask if I can take over that lease. Um, or there's going to be patients coming to that practice, wanting to knock on the door because that's what they're used to doing and find that it's empty. So I'm going to be there to do that. It's important that we, that we add that value, that somebody's willing to pay you for that opportunity, for that bubble to be created. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're going to just wait for you to leave. And when you leave, I'm going to step in anyway and say, well, here I am. Uh, whether you've sold your practice for value or not, uh, mm-hmm. whether you've just yeah. shut your doors and moved, there's an opportunity in that space. Um, but no, you can't um, from the actual sale of the practice itself. No, um, But I guess as an opportunity cost, you could go to somebody saying, I'm about to vacate here. Uh, I want to put you in the front of the queue to actually take the opportunity to be in this space because this corner is really, attracts good, good, good uh, footfall and, you know, this patient's always seeking and there's a, you know, there's, there's a, the, yeah, so so there's a need that needs to be met. But that's a conversation, but that's not really a selling of a practice and a translation, a, 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 yeah. a transfer of ownership of my physio practice to an occupational Two. therapist, for example, you can't do that.
0: Okay. Yeah amazing mm-hmm. you can really mm-hmm. keep on talking about this for hours can't you
1: <laughs> yeah i can't believe the time really.
0: <laughs> it is five to five we need to start wrapping up and i still want to tell our viewers what's happening next week but you know i'm going to come back to you and perhaps you can just highlight or give us a few principles a few things people really need to focus on sure, when they start considering selling a practice yeah. or what they need to keep in mind um but viewers just just based on our discussion over the last two weeks and including today we, we've learned how to set up your practice, how to market your practice, but, uh, and, and then how to send your practice. But what happens in between? What happens with the people working at your practice? Mm-hmm. Um, I want you to join us next week, where it's going to be myself and Dion again. And we'll be joined by Lindy Krier, who is a human resource manager with the SpaceNet Group. And we're going to talk about all things relating to human resource management, payroll, leave, disciplinary policies, all sorts of other policies and procedures, contracting hours, um, dismissals, legalities, tax implications, and perhaps we can even unpack on who you need to employ to support you in your practice, who is suitable for the job as for example, your practice manager. So that's gonna be an interesting one to, to uncover and then sort of unpack a little bit more. Um, and to secure your spot for this webinar, please go and register under the webinar tab on our website, easymed.solutions. But there is some other exciting news happening next week as well. Um, we're gonna be joined by Karen Stratton from Ergotherapy Solutions. Now you might remember her from the webinar dated, I think it was the 4th of June, where we spoke about the do's, the don'ts, the desks and the dress for for practicing Mm -hmm. telehealth. Now, um, Karen will be joining us to announce the winner of the competition that's been running on the EasyMed Facebook page. Now, remember this is closing on the 29th of October, which is next week, Thursday. It's closing at around lunchtime. And you stand the chance to win a net one office chair to the value of 6,500 Rand. Now, who wouldn't want to win a beautiful chair like that? So all you need to do is just go to the EasyMed Facebook page, answer a very, very easy question there, and you can stand in line to, to win this amazing chair. So it's going to be Dion Lindy, myself, and then Karen Stratton right at the end of the webinar. So please stay tuned and register for next week's webinar. But Dion, we've got about three minutes left. I'm going to hand back over to you. Perhaps you can just try and summarize today's interesting yep. conversation in about two or three sentences for us.
1: Sure thing. I, I'll, I'll try and do that in three minutes. Um, <laughs> I'm sitting on one of those chairs myself. I love them. So that's the reason we brought them in. I use their standing table and their chairs. And at home, I've set that up as well. So it really is an amazing product. And I'm not trying to plug them. I'm trying to encourage you guys to go on and uh, and make sure your name's in the hat so you can be drawn for that. Um but um, but yeah, for, for next week's webinar, I think the title I always put to this is is looking after your 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 biggest asset, the most valuable asset. Your people in your practice is really what makes your practice what it is. So from an HR point of view, um, you know the, 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 it can be that boring stuff, that technical stuff from HR and payroll. But we want to give you tips and hints and just what the legal structure is, um, and the ethics around that as well. Um, on how to take care of your people, because if you take care of your people, you take care of your business, not the other way around. People before profits. Um, so so that's really what next week's is all about. Um, but in closing, really, um, I think in preparing your practice for sale and building value in your practice, um, I think the first and most important thing is that you seriously consider your business structure, nonprofit organization, for-profit and Inc. Solus and so on, really consider that. If anybody is in a partnership, I'd really encourage you to rethink that, uh, a a formal partnership structure. Um, I don't think there's there's value in that. Um, But look at your business structure. Secondly, look at your contracts. Make sure that you've got your staff employment contracts in place, your lease agreements. We went through quite a lot of detail on lease agreements uh, two weeks ago. Uh, We will revisit that in a few weeks' time. Um, But make sure your contracts are in place. Um, If you're able to do accreditation for your practice in some way, is there an independent body that can say, here's accreditation criteria to actually raise the standard and level of your practice? Um, Then look at that. I know a lot of associations and societies are doing that. I know the Chiropractic Association has done that. The Physiotherapy Society has done that. So so engage in those so that you can actually get your practice accredited to some third-party valuation on that. I think that adds tremendous value to a practice. Look at your policies and procedures. What are your staff policies? What are your procedures that you have in place? Uh, Do do your staff, your credit controllers know that this is how I handle accounts? If they're over 30 days, then we do the following. Then we send this SMS. Then we send that email. At what point do we hand over for collection and so on? So there's clear processes that help run the practice and realize the profits that it deserves. Um, So those policies and procedures are really valuable. Um, so, So look at putting those in place. Make sure you've built a cash reserve in your practice, which we've spoken about before, your good financial policies. Um, Look at uh, real-time management reports, especially your financial reports, uh, making sure that you're getting them monthly, if you can, from your accountants, so that you can keep your finger on the pulse on what's happening financially in your practice. Do valuations on your practice regularly, um, at least once a year. Set a budget. For those who haven't set budgets, go and set a budget so you can actually measure whether you're meeting your expectations or not on a monetary value uh, measurable. Um, And separate your business from your personal finances. I think those will all go a very long way in building value in your practice. And then explore opportunities from potential threats. I think we often jump up and down and go, "What's happening with NHI, certificate of need, uh, PPPs? uh, 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 Where are we going with all of this? What can I do to be part of that?" So just step into that, lean into that, and find ways that you can embrace those threats and turn them into opportunities for your practice. What is the strategy? And embrace that and lean into it. So I think those are some key points that one can look at in building value in your practice
0: amazing there were so many things that i never even thought of before so this conversation has been a real eye-opener for me i hope the attendees experience the same thing as i dion thanks so much again for for sharing your wisdom with us we really appreciate that that is literally all the time we have got this afternoon, folks. We ran over by one minute. Apologies for that. But until we meet meet again, which is going to be next week, Thursday, same time, same place, please stay safe and take care. <laughs> See you next week and bye-bye, Dion.
1: Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Lonnie. Take care. Good afternoon.